So uh, welcome everyone for our next episode of Cap Talk. And uh, in the previous episodes, we talked a lot about automation. We talked a lot about this intersection between biology and technology. And today we really want to focus on the science and we've got a scientist, pure biologist here. We're here today with James Redding, who's an immunologist and researcher at University College London. Welcome, James. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So James is an immunologist and researcher at University College London, specializing in T-cell responses to cancer chronic viral infections. He's focused on the immunology of lung cancer at the Cancer Institute at UCL and is a consultant for Achilles Therapeutics. For the people that are not really familiar with immunology, can you just explain a little bit, or can you give your vision around immunology? Why is immunology such an important feature in in life sciences? Let me ask you both a, a question in return, right? When was the point in your life when you were your sickest? And how do you explain that? How, how, how would you explain what you sensed, your symptoms, and your general feeling of being around that time? Oh, that was probably... I can't remember when I was really sick, when I was like seven or eight. It's quite young, I think. I was very sick. Just feeling the malaise, the muscle ache, just pains, but also very much not able to do stuff. And I think I caught like some type of infection which I think around kids was <laughs> quite familiar to to get to get to get infected so um I can remember I was very very sick that's my story David what about you mine was only a couple of years ago my uh my appendix went death star just kablamot oh wow yeah you wouldn't expect it to happen at 30 you know uh you know to, to use each of your responses to answer this question you know, you're not you're not familiar with the subtleties and the circuitry of a system until a complex system that you rely on every day begins to disintegrate or break. So, you know, when you experience acute pain, when you experience sweating or the malaise that Fane used to characterize his illness, you know, this is a symptom at the tip of the iceberg of what is an unfolding biological cascade. And in your immune system, you only tend to feel its full force when you are at the real peak of an infection, when your body is really mounting a response. What you don't appreciate is that second by second, minute by minute, and day by day, every moment of your life, your body is fighting this bombardment and this onslaught of a diverse pathogenic threat. And your immune system is what is allowing us to have this conversation here. It's why either of you didn't die during those infections because of your, you managed to reduce that inflammation, you managed to clear that bacteria or, or those viruses, and you're able to mount a, a memory response, probably in your case, famous to a viral infection, which then allows you through the course of your lifetime to be protected from that pathogenic threat. And then again, on a week by week and a month by month basis, to face new threats and develop specific and long lasting immunity to those. Mm. And I think that's not all of its job. You know, it, it also has to elicit this response with specificity and with memory, but it has to do that without causing excessive collateral damage to the host. And so it's a very fine balance because when excessive autoimmunity elaborates and goes too far beyond its own checks and balances and homeostasis, then that's when you begin to experience autoimmunity, which is destruction of your own tissue at the hands of your immune system. And, you know, a prototypic example of that is is type 1 diabetes, where or you're unable to produce endogenous insulin because the beta cells and the islets of Langerhans in your pancreas are under a, a concerted and a sustained attack by your lymphocytes. And then we have transplantation. And what happens in transplantation? Well, we know that patients that do not receive sufficient pharmacological immunosuppression, so the ways in which they can reduce their immune system down, will very rapidly reject their, their solid organ transplant or their bone marrow transplant. 
And so the immune system is important there. And we're still figuring out the best ways in which to induce tolerance and to allow grafts to be you know, sustained and, and with long-term durable function in hosts. And then, of course, there's what I've been working on for the last few years, which is cancer. If the immune system does its job and it keeps you alive as an organism for long enough and you haven't succumbed to uh, an infection, you haven't died, then what is the price at the cellular level or the level of an organism for immortality? The price of immortality is cancer. The immune system also has a way in which it can intrinsically recognize cancer as something foreign and can mount a response against that. And we're still really beginning to understand the nuts and bolts of how the immune system recognizes cancer, what the major targets are, what are the cellular and molecular mechanisms that define that response to cancer and how we can best uh, modulate those responses to maximize therapeutic efficacy. Uh, what are your thoughts on CAR T-cell therapy and, and where that might go? T-cell therapy in general, I think, has had for some time a lot of promise. And the majority of the literature has really come from um, Steve Rosenberg, who's recently been very well recognized for his efforts, and, and, and Carl June as well. And, and what these guys have shown is that in Steve Rosenberg's case, really with minimal manipulation by using just interleukin-2 in culture, you can take T cells out from a patient with melanoma, you can culture them up, reinfuse them at ratios that are far higher than would be present endogenously within the patient's tumor. And from that, you can get really remarkable clinical responses. We're talking between 40 and 60% of patients with uh, melanoma will respond to, to TIL therapy without any major adjustments or modifications of the T cell. So based on that principle and extrapolating that, if you can modify and target the T cells to a specific antigen, which is really going to be uh, you know, specifically expressed in CAR Ts, the most famous CAR Ts, uh, you know, the, the CD19 targeting CAR T family, in that case, an antigen which is going to be specifically and uniquely expressed on a cancer cell, then you can redirect that immune response specifically to eliminate and target that particular malignancy. So... The challenges that more broadly face the cell therapy space, I think there's several of them. The, the first was really reaching the target dose, as you mentioned, David. So, you know, can you, from a patient, aspirate sufficient cells? Can we expand them and grow them in vitro? Yes, we know that we can reach a target dose now using interleukin-2 and other blends of cytokines. Can we do that then rapidly in a, a window which is going to be therapeutically useful for the patient? Are they going to be taken in within a couple of weeks? Can we manufacture a dose which is going to be efficacious uh, in that time? The quality of the product. So on a per cell basis, are the cells that you're infusing really going to do the job? And I think that that is, that is really a, a very difficult question to answer. One thing that we assume is that the T cells which are going to be the most potent in terms of causing tumor regression are those that have a certain type of function. So we look for canonical effective functions in T cells. Are they going to be cytotoxic? Do they have the potential to lyse and destroy target cells in a dish? And is that the best measure? This, a paper out last week, for example, demonstrated that the two molecules that we use to characterize that process are two of probably two to 300 that are actually involved in that process. So we're relying upon you know, a lot of assumed knowledge in how these cells um, optimally elicit their function. And we're trying to measure the quality and, and assess and release our products based on those metrics. But I think what that says is we need to understand the basics. Uh, you already mentioned the fact that going back to the basics and doing understanding the biology and the science. How, how is that now the last couple of years when technology has 
come out. There are a lot of new technologies coming in, technologies that you're using into your lab, in, in your lab. How important is it that we have the right tools to really go back and understand that basic biology? It's indispensable. If you do not understand how an immune response is orchestrated to a tumour, and you do not understand what really constitutes an effective, durable immune response, which will eliminate the tumour, but also provide lifelong memory, as we mentioned to viruses, you also want the same thing to cancer. So if you do not understand the mechanisms that underpin that response and that can fine-tune that response, then you cannot hope to really make strides forward in the cell therapy space, the antibody engineering space, or, or really the biomarker space. So this is something that you know I've been looking at for the last four years, and, and, and it's really been trying to get a grasp on how the immune system sees lung cancer. Right, so, so what are the major substrates for immune recognition in lung cancer? And so you need some clues, right? You need some clues as to what to go after and what to start investigating. And so when we began to try and decipher this response, and I should mention this is work that was done in the lab of uh, Professor Sergio Casada and very closely associated with uh, Charles Swanton, who is the pioneer of the Tracer X study uh, at the Quick, um, which is really a unique unprecedented and very well-powered study characterizing genomic heterogeneity, evolution, and immunity in, in lung cancer. Patients being treated from 2011 onwards were demonstrating very clearly that if you modulate T cells in cancer patients using checkpoint inhibitors, so if you de-repress them, you take the brakes off the immune system, we can get these unprecedented clinical responses, right? But that was only happening in a minority of patients, especially at that time, 20 to 30% of patients with melanoma or lung cancer were were experiencing any kind of clinical response. The smoking gun in that respect for us was that patients that had more mutations in their tumour, these were the key patients that seemed to get the most durable clinical benefit from immune checkpoint blockade. So what that leads to are these mutations now serving as a key substrate for recognition of cancer. And we know that because the more mutations you have, the better your response on immunotherapy. Right? So that's mm. the smoking gun and that, that's the first line of evidence. Now, corresponding with that, we know that we can find uh, T cells that recognize mutations in cancer patients, in their blood, in their tumour, on therapy and off therapy, and we can see the same thing in animal models. And then thirdly, some of the adoptive cell therapies that elicit strong radiographic responses in the clinic, they contain T cells that recognise neoantigens. That tells you that neoantigens look like they're a strong target for immune recognition, right? So that's where we focused our effort. So then we have to take a step back and say, look, how do we combine the mutational landscape of a tumour with how the immune system is seeing that tumour. How how does that axis play out? And this is what I mean about not understanding the fundamentals of of the biology. Mm. So how is that response orchestrated? You have a mutation, you have a tumour that is presenting that mutation. How is then an immune response really orchestrated around that, leading to uh, a, a significant clinical difference between patients with and without those mutations? And what I focused on are single cell technologies. Right, which has obviously been huge and, and, it, and it's trendy, but it's not just trendy and something you hop on because everyone else is doing it. Turns out it's really important to understand you know, the heterogeneity and the true complexity of a system and specifically the immune system, because there's a great diversity in how your immune system recognizes uh, antigens, 
in how those different T cell populations function, how they talk to each other, and how they talk to different components of the immune system. And you can only really resolve that at a single cell level. So what I use is single cell RNA-seq and, and flow cytometry or um, cytoff. And that allows you with you know, multiple different parameters, proteins in the case of flow cytometry, or genes in the case of single cell RNA-seq, to really understand you know, the, the complexity of these intricate biological systems. And by doing that, what we have found, this is a manuscript which has just been accepted at Nature Cancer and should be published, I hope, by the time this podcast comes out, was really finding and defining this T-cell response that was formed around mutations in lung cancer patients. So I guess that that's you know, a, a combination of going back to basics, back to the drawing board, revisiting an axiom or an assumed piece of knowledge and using you know, 21st century technologies to interrogate that and hopefully getting the best out of them to translate to some kind of clinical benefit. Yeah. So, so James, you, you already mentioned like the basic research and the science is important. Um, you work a lot with clinical samples. You mentioned Achilles. How important is it in cancer immunology and the stage that we are at that we see these very important collaborations between academic research institutions, pharma companies, biotech companies, but also companies that supply you with the tools to, to really do the, the important research. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit on that? It's impossible, really, in the research landscape in the 21st century to do something meaningful without all of those parties being heavily invested, involved, and, and closely collaborating and, and being interdigitated. We as academic science, we like to think at least, rich in ideas. <laughs> we, 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 most of them are terrible, but some of them are important and some of them are, can translate to something meaningful. But where we're quite poor, although this may change, where we're quite poor is in terms of funding, certainly comparative to big pharma. And we're also poor in being able to have a good success rate at rapidly translating our ideas into the clinic and getting them manufactured and getting them tested and QC'd and seeing if they're ever going to really have an effect. The bridge then between big pharma and between academic science is either through partnerships, and I was previously uh, involved in a collaboration between a big pharma company and, and King's College London by Innovate UK. At the time, they were called Technology Strategy Board. And that was a fantastic initiative that catalyzed really that relationship between big pharma and, and academic science. And it's a really fertile field. And I learned a huge amount from exposure to you know, corporate science and to big pharma and, and to biotech. So to bridge the gap between big pharma and academic science, we really need a middle ground. And that's where I think you know, small startup biotechs spun out from academic labs are instrumental and they're indispensable. That allows us to begin to test the waters with ideas and therapies. Can we get research funding? Are we convinced that this is something which is going to be clinically and economically viable? You can't do that within the remit of an academic lab partly but not exclusively because we have other concerns and other priorities. That's certainly something which has changed the space for the better. And the more I think that government quangos and organisations are there to promote and fuel that collaboration and, and that you know, interface between academia and pharma and biotech, the better off we're all going to be. And, you know, personally, I've only seen good things from that. I've been able to be involved in several projects which have translated, I hope, to potentially new clinical products that wouldn't have been mm. possible through academic science. It's given me travel. It's, given, it's, it's provided me with a whole new perspective on science. So it yeah. sounds like you're in a very unique position, having had that work with companies and, and 
your role in, in academia. And you've spoken about bridges, binding it together. And tell me about the bottlenecks. Tell me about the problems that still have yet to be addressed. Yeah, I, I think, you know, specifically in those relationships, um, there's obviously a huge amount of red tape. And where I think the bottlenecks lie is in a fertile and an honest exchange of ideas. And I think that's only going to change when there are more scientists that are either required to or see the benefit in spending time in pharmaceutical companies and mm. biotech companies during their training, throughout their PhDs or early in their postdoc life. And vice versa, I think that big pharma and biotech firms have a huge amount to learn from the incubation and the generation of ideas and, and the cross-pollination of ideas that takes place very rapidly in academic science. One of the things that I think is being effectively broadcast from academia to industry is just how robust you need to be in your research in order to progress an idea forward. So, so what I really liked about the mindset, and this is something that I just wanted to discuss a little bit more because when I was in academia for me it was all about the mindset I wasn't really happy with the mindset of academics and I was interested okay how do they think about these things in biotech or in pharma with you you've been in academia for for quite a long bit and you've seen the people come and go you've seen scientists who are that very narrow-minded uh, you've obviously been also exposed to ones that are really open-minded and I think it also developed you into the science that you are now uh, and my question is really what is the mindset of an academic scientist that you say, okay, in the future, this mindset is so important. It's very important that you basically think about this, 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 and this. It's very important that you're knowledgeable. Is it very important that you are equipped in the lab with the tools? What important mindset is, is so important for, let's say, a next generation scientist? Uh, yeah, so I, th I think there's, there's probably a couple of aspects and, and ways in which you can address that question. So First of all, you know, what does the empirical evidence tell you about success in any sector, right? And there, mm. there are two key correlates of success, which are IQ and conscientiousness. M maybe you can, maybe you can't do much about your IQ, but you can definitely work on your conscientiousness. As I said about the benefits of working in pharma in terms of having to very rigorously and meticulously record and explain your data. So if you can do that in an academic setting where you can be conscientious enough to have a hypothesis conduct the experiment and at every single stage record every minor detail of your thoughts, your data, the experimental setup. And that happens inevitably as you go from your training as a junior member of the lab. You know, technicians are notably better than that than PhD students because PhD students really invest a lot of their time in just data generation. Yeah. And sometimes that comes at the expense either of knowledge. I can see you smiling there, Faye. You know what that's like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very clearly. Yeah. And, and yeah, that, that can come at the expense sometimes of being meticulous with your record keeping or sometimes of keeping up the literature. Right. And, and you learn those you learn those balances and you hopefully, you know, get yourself on solid footing as you progress throughout your career. Your reward system is really not well calibrated when you come into academic science because mm -hmm. you're going to constantly, constantly encounter failure. You know, something in molecular biology doesn't go doesn't go right. You don't quite know perhaps, you know, which one of those 35 variables that you're looking at has costed you an experiment. So you need to be able to revisit that. You have to give a talk when you're junior, you think your work might be perfectly well polished, you presented it in front of 10 people in your laboratory, the feedback's been excellent, you presented it at a scientific conference and you get torn down. Right? <laughs> you need to be able to be thick-skinned and tenacious enough to not take that personally and to be able to learn from that and be fully open. And I think it's really 
only after spending 10, 15 years in academic science that you're able to truly embrace and, and welcome criticism. And that speaks to the mindset of, of having a, a growth mindset where you're not entrenched in a certain belief system or you're not attracted to a certain piece of dogma or consensus in the field, but you're willing to filter through the new ideas because not all of them are going to be brilliant, but incorporate and add to and supplement and sometimes completely change your perspective or your hypothesis on the subject. And that's also true when it comes to embracing pharmaceutical companies, biotechnology, collaborations and technology. If you're committed to using a certain technology in your laboratory and that technology is giving you, let's say, 30% efficiency, but you're very familiar and you're very comfortable with it. the, The cost is going to be for you to park your ego and say, can I take three months away, revisit the literature, go to conferences, you know, see what's out there, what can I learn from the biotech sector? How can I put a shot in the arm and make my technology more high throughput, more automated, simpler, to give my mind more time to think about the theory of the project and less hands-on time at the bench? But that's a very brave decision, especially difficult to make that when you already have a system that you're familiar with, you're optimized, that you know is already giving you data. Right, so it's about, I think, bravery, courage, and, and willingness to ask more of yourself and to keep your mind open when it comes to collaboration. You know, the, the old style of science used to be that you could do fantastic work in a team of one or a team of two. <laughs> you could be completely isolated in a dark basement somewhere, pouring canonical, you know, conical flasks <laughs> one into the other, making depression, and, and having these, these wonderful epiphanies, right, and, and breakthroughs yeah. and eureka moments. It doesn't happen anymore. You can't do that. Yeah. And, and, and the reason the landscape has changed so much is that we ask more of ourselves because the technology has facilitated that we can do more. So now you need to have sub-disciplines. You don't just have a person who's a molecular biologist. Within molecular biology, there's you know, sub-disciplines of are you a single-cell RNA-seq specialist? Do you specialise in you know, T-cell receptor sequencing? Do you clone? And are you particularly uh, optimal in using CRISPR? and plug and play, cut and paste molecular biology, you know, where is your subspeciality? You cannot expect yourself to be able to cover all of those technologies and have an all-encompassing knowledge of all of them. So you have to rely on other people. And that makes, you know, collaborations between individuals, between labs, between biotech and pharma, all of that needs to be fluid. At the same time, you cannot lose your focus. And you also, unfortunately, you cannot always share your best ideas as soon as you might want to. Yeah. because it's such a competitive environment. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish we were calibrated in a way that we could openly share ideas as soon as they came to us. The truth is you may be keeping an idea to yourself for 10 years, which is absolutely terrible. So you wasted your time <laughs> and you needed, to, and, and you needed to, to, air, to air it with other people in order to gauge whether it's good or not. And you have to be willing to accept that most of your ideas won't be good. Yeah. You, you mentioned about the reward system and uh, in the beginning you mentioned that you're working on this paper and I can see it in your background. People can't, can't see it, but they can hear you. But I can see a couple of nature magazines in the back as well. <laughs> How important is this reward system for, for academic scientists? And just take, take a look at yourself. How important is it that you, um, that you do good research, but you also publish in, in, in a good journal? Um, what, is that, what is that taking you for your next step into science? Um, yeah, I think it's a very, very, very big question. Very tricky question thing. There, there's, <laughs> there's so many different elements to this. So I think that the barometer of your success as a scientist, is your publication output, right? There's, make no bones about it. You can say that you're a good collaborator, you have a fantastic reputation in your field, unless you have a proven track record and you can, you can demonstrate that on your CV, then you're gonna struggle, I think. Not all the time, but for the mm. most part, you, you may struggle 
to advance your career in the way you would have wanted with the same trajectory and the same uh, pace. Firstly, this is a hoop that we have to jump, jump through. However, if you believe in your science and you believe that you've addressed a significant problem in a robust way that it's important for the community to know, then you are beholden to the community in conveying your work. And that should be at conferences, of course, and that should be you know, by oral presentations and through posters, but it also has to be in publications. Hmm. So it, it's very important professionally um, and in terms of your track record, but it's also incredibly important for the community that they get to, you know, critique your work, understand it, reproduce it, hopefully, and can share and disseminate that knowledge. You have to be willing to embrace the idea that you know, your hypothesis might not be spot on first time, yeah. and you have to be able to pursue the data. But in the 21st century, you also have to know when it's best to tie up a series of observations into a manuscript and when to pursue those longer term. I have the kind of personality where I'd like to work on a project until it's complete. Mm. The issue with, <laughs> exactly. But, but yeah. the, 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 the issue there, of course, is that who's going to judge whether it's complete? And if you don't get your series of observations out and published and in the field, it, how is anyone ever going to know that you're doing anything meaningful? And, you know, there's a lot of competitiveness out there. You, you, you don't know if someone else working in another lab on the other side of the world has the same series of observations. And you hope you do, and you hope you can confirm one another without having any detriment to one another's careers. I mean, that's the ideal situation. Because obviously publication is a measurement. Is there anything else that you get satisfaction on? Is there, do you get a eureka moment when you're in the lab and, and you find something or is everything really focused on that bigger picture, that new finding or that new collaboration? Or Actually, most of the rewards that I could say are significant, you know, for me personally throughout my career, are not tied inextricably with publication. But for me, it, it is the rewards and the motivations are in development, in, in learning, in having those moments. They might not quite be the leaps that used to constitute a eureka moment in the past because... I think science is a lot more iterative and gradual and mm. than, than it was before. And a lot of the fundamental concepts and principles are understood. That's not to say there's nothing to, nothing to reveal, but you know, the, inevitably the gaps in the knowledge are becoming smaller over time. But, but it is that moment where you first see a combination of variables come together and you know, we're, we're some, way off, some way off validating and publishing this now. But for example, last week I had a moment where there are a series of patients I was looking at. I tested a hypothesis and you know, the, the beginnings of a potential novel mechanism that could be therapeutically valuable are just beginning to blossom now and show. I think those moments where you have a correlation that looks interesting before yeah. you begin to really test that experimentally, those are the wonder moments in science and those are what you work for and work towards. But also I think that development is very important. An example I'll give you is in coding. Mm. So I am I'm allergic to informatics almost as a bench <laughs> scientist, as we all were, right? When when yeah. we were when we were when we were brought up as bench scientists, most of us couldn't stand statistics, we couldn't stand informatics. And then we got to a point where, and this is a big statistical problem, is that we almost have you know, more parameters or more variables than we do observations. The size of our data is going up so exponentially. You can no longer sit there and cut and paste on Excel spreadsheets. You know, you need to be able to handle your data effectively, efficiently, and in a reliable manner. And that necessitates that you learn a different way of, of, of processing data and analyzing and presenting it. 
And so, for example, you know, in the last four or five years, all of us in the laboratory have been taught firsthand from a couple of talented bioinformaticians in the group how useful coding is in languages like Python and R. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, you know, I think a good academic scientist is can get their reward pathways in lieu, perhaps, or in the gaps in between publications or presentations, appointments or, you know, career progression just from constantly learning and embracing new technologies and new ways. And it's been really eye-opening. And, and, and now, you know, I enjoy, I have to say, I enjoy coding as much, if not more, than I do bench. Wow. <laughs> and, that's because, and, that, and that's because of the power it has to, to imbue the data, you know, to really allow you to, to, to see what's happening with great power. You know, you're no longer saying I'm testing one variable at a time. You're going to be able to take a huge data set confirm and, and validate a hypothesis you have from a small set of primary data of, of patients in your own hands with public repositories. And you can do that with thorough multivariate testing. You can do it with uh, a number of uh, you know, complex statistical algorithms. And re you can really push the data before you go back in the lab and confirm and extend those observations with experiments. You can get a handle on uh, and, and kind of heat seek towards the really most meaningful chunks of data and the most meaningful correlations and observations. Yeah. I think, uh, David, I think also uh, this is a great bridge into computer-aided biology where we do talk a lot about coding, we talk a lot about data, we talk a lot about automation. Obviously, academia um, hasn't really been exposed to that bit, but you see a lot in biotech, you see a lot in pharma, you see a lot in, in process development. You already mentioned coding, you already mentioned the, the fact that you're able to handle data. Um, when it comes to computer biology, we're really looking to automation and really connecting the digital to physical. Where do you see that being very important? Where do you see that be playing a very, very big role? Because I can imagine in basic science, that's probably not suitable. What is it? You know, so I think the automation in terms of liquid handling is something that needs to be transitioned and pushed a lot harder to liberate scientists to be able to use their creativity and their ingenuity more than performing you know, monotonous, repetitive, mechanical tasks. Mm. That's one aspect. Is there anywhere else, any other stage of scientists or, or step in the lab that you think would be important? What do you guys think? I, I think data. I think data is a massive thing because there, there's big discussions on like, I think mm. a couple of years ago we were talking about, okay, we need data, data, data. Now we're developing and generating data generating good data, you already mentioned error-prone reproducibility. Um, how can we generate the best amount of robust data and, and analyze that and making sure that we understand the data to basically go further in a process of a drug development or an intervention. So I think the digitalization of data is also a very important area. Let's imagine a perfect world, right, in terms of, in terms of science. You would be spending probably a good proportion of your time dreaming up and, and thinking of interesting, potentially revolutionary ideas that had a, a meaningful clinical impact, potentially. And you want to test those in as many patients as possible, as robustly as possible. And then you want to have data which is not only reliable, but is directly comparable to every other person in the field so mm. that you can aggregate that data and learn cumulatively. And so what that necessitates is not only standardization in terms of the bench work and the workflow and the reagents, the approaches that you take, and getting that harmonized is incredibly challenging even between collaborators, let alone between competitors or the field as a whole. So secondly, then you've spoken about data analysis and how we automate, you know, how we automate and, and harmonize and, and make that uniform. And I think seemingly that is less of a challenge mm. because let's say for argument's sake that everyone in the world is using the same platform 
and, and let's say there's a famous brand of single cell sequencing technology that everyone seems to be using in the lab. You know, let's say that may or may not be true. And everyone deposits their data and everyone's used the same sequencing platform. And if not, then you can accommodate for that by you know, writing scripts that will help to that will help to standardize those different you know, platforms and take their idiosyncrasies into account to make it uniform and normalized, right? So then you get to the point where you have a, a normalized uh, output of data amongst different groups of scientists. And you would think that the next step could be quite simple in terms of an automated, standardized workflow and analysis. And we haven't achieved that. And that's not happening. And I I think because we're still learning the best way to analyze data. And that has been born of the gap between data scientists and wet lab scientists and biologists. Some of the most critical people in the laboratory now are those that have wet lab skills and coding skills. Bioinformatician that can enter the wet lab and learn what it takes and you know what the potential where the variability is introduced in the assay and likewise wet lab scientists that can very rapidly acquire a, a comprehensive understanding of informatics you can't rapidly acquire that i've learned that you definitely it's definitely not rapid right it's slow and it's <laughs> painful yeah. it's painful as hell it's worth it it's worth it in the it's, end I mean, it, it, it is absolutely worth it. And actually, you know, as, as frightening, as painful as it is to begin with, after a couple of weeks or a couple of months, you become relatively familiar with the language. By having this nice fluid collaboration between bench scientists and bioinformaticians, that we reach a point where we can begin to have a consensus sooner rather than later on what are the best ways to analyze data, you know, type of data X. How do you link data type X with data type Y? What's the best way to pair that data and integrate those two types of data? And hopefully, you know, as, as big data becomes enormous data and, and as, as, as people perform more of these higher parameter experiments, we learn from each other as a community and there can be some guidelines introduced with a standardized SOP on how we go about integrating this data and, you know, maximize, um, maximize things like machine learning, which, you know, it, it's really only at its infancy, I think, in academic science. But it will become, I think, you know, a, a, a vital and um, an everyday component of research. Yeah, definitely. Um, and James, um, just, just speaking to you uh, on this podcast, um, it's, it's quite obvious you're, you're a very good communicator. Um, you're also very much aware of, as an academic scientist, what goes around um, in the different sectors and industries. Uh, you've also done a lot of consulting work in the cell, in, in the cell therapy biotech space. What do you really want to take out in the sense of what your future looks like? Is it really uh, the end goal of having this great group of scientists working on those aspects that you already mentioned and leading a really good scientific group? Or is it coming up with this new innovation at the intersection of biology and technology on cell therapy or drug development and, and basically setting up a biotech company where you're able to make and go through the whole process of developing a new intervention. How do you see yourself in, in that future? What is your end goal? This is a very, very tough question. I, I, I wish I had a very comprehensive and clear answer, and I kind of do, but probably not as, um, not as complete as I would like it to be. Hmm. At its core, I guess you could characterize my ambition in a better understanding of the fundamental laws of the immune response. And being able to understand common mechanisms between an evolving beast, whether that be uh, a pathogen or whether that be a tumour, and how the dynamics of the immune response are orchestrated and dance around that 
and where the failures and pitfalls can be rectified in order to resurrect potent immune responses using uh, as, as comprehensive analytical methods as possible that goes from technology through to informatics in really imbuing the data and being able to observe without too much intervention what the natural state of affairs is between the intersection of pathogen or tumor genomics and immune dynamics, specifically T-cell dynamics. And with a view to finding fundamental common threads between different human immunopathologies that could be the single axis, or to use the company who I consult for's analogy, the Achilles heel, Mm. that could really swing the immune system in favour of, you know, a master switch or a master regulator that could switch the immune system in favour of, you know, on one hand, promoting graft tolerance and reducing autoimmunity, and on the other hand, being the key to potent anti-tumor and um, antiviral or pathogen-specific immune responses. So I think in terms of science, that's probably at the moment where I'd like to head. You really want to go into the science and get understand exactly what's going on. You really want to get yes. your hands on that. Well, I, I want to understand the depth and the complexity and the entirety of the role of T cells in the immune system and human physiology and health and disease. I mean, that's not asking too much, is it? No. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> that's my point. <laughs> you know, if I achieve 0.1% of that, I think I'll be very, very happy. That would be yeah, because my question was, is, is this a never-ending story? Yes, of course it is. And that's the beauty <laughs> of it, right? We're hopefully never going to run out and reach that saturation point. The rate in which data is being accrued now and the number of publications, the number of researchers, especially galvanized by the COVID-19 pandemic and the focus on cancer immunology, the number of people that are going to be in this field is going to you know, grow exponentially. It's, it's, going, yeah. it's going to increase massively. So hopefully we reach the saturation point quickly because that means that we'll have answers therapeutically to some of the most disastrous um, human diseases on, on the planet. But on the other hand, you know, I like to think there's still some fundamentals and still some mysteries um, in science for us to uncover and doing that in the context of you know a research group um, that's a reasonable enough size uh, and who hopefully one can inspire and motivate to really be aggressive in their pursuit of of science and discovery with of course one eye on translation healthcare potentially biotechnology i wouldn't you know i wouldn't rule out working with with biotechs or pharma in, in, in the future i think as i said that's that's going to be um indispensable <laughs> of course good thank you so much that was great that's it for this week's episode of cap talk if you want to get involved in the computer aided biology community go to computeraidedbiology.com or join us at revolutionaries at computeraidedbiology.com <laughs>